Boys and girls, your attention, please. The Blank Corporation presents a brand new radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, impervious to bullets. academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Wayne Wise. How's it going, Wayne? Good. How are you, Mav? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We're not doing a New, a new Year's show this today. We're not. We're not. <laughs> it's three weeks of New Year's, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've kind of drove that into the ground. That's right. So we've got a new topic. Um, I don't know if I remember how to do this. Um, so, But, you know, did I ever really? Yeah. You were teasing me before the show <laughs> that I was going to mess up the intro, and I you, did not. I you just did not. I nailed you, you that. did not. We'll make a note, note of that. That's right. One take. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, one of the things that's weird about this show, you know, you and I are both comic book guys, as it were. And like, that's kind of like our role. And we do very few comic book shows. Yeah. And, and initially, when we first started talking about this in, in the comic shop, that was sort of where we started was, let's, oh, we, we stand here and talk about comics every week. We should do a podcast of this or someone told us we should do a podcast of this. And then it very quickly expanded to include everything everything else in pop culture <laughs> uh which, I, which i'm okay with I, yeah yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that um mm-hmm. but people actually ask every once in a while how come you don't do more comic shows and so we because everyone do else this. does <laughs> yeah <laughs> we thought we'd do one this week it'd be interesting and um as as regular listeners will notice um neither hannah nor katia could make it this week so we invited guests like we always do so first i want to welcome back returning our our very first guest ever <laughs> on the vox podcast john dorowski how's it going john i'm doing fine glad to be back hey, hey welcome back john welcome thanks and also joining us for the first time friend of ours Ooh. from from the same place I know John, um, from the pop culture academic circuit, Anna Papard. Hey, Anna. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So here's where the idea for this show came from. I, if you, again, if you listen to this show regularly, you know that I am working on my dissertation. Working on my dissertation means I bang my head at a wall a lot and I complain about whatever I'm writing about, usually on Twitter. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that. But at one point I was complaining about golden age comics and the two of you both responded to it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember <laughs> and I was, this. Yeah, and I was like, well, that, that should be a show. 
<laughs> you, you posted something very negative about early Superman, and it made me sad. And I had to respond. And I'm not a big Facebook participator, so it takes a lot for me to respond. I, I don't know what I said exactly. Um, what I mean, it was probably something snide. Uh, like I know, I know. Recently on the show, I was talking about Silver Age comics, not Golden Age comics, and I said something to the effect of. You know, the Silver Age of comics went from 1955 to 1970, roughly. And in that time, hundreds of thousands of comic books were, uh, were published and not a single one of them is good. <laughs> oh my goodness. I am a big fan of them. <laughs> but um, and I'm I don't know that I would say that about the Golden Age. I There's some stuff in the Golden Age that I legitimately love but uh, like i'm 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 trying to decide do i think any of them are good can i recommend yeah. them to somebody who's not a comic well, fan i think I, some i could well yeah and i i ran into that just in my role as a retailer people coming in and wanting to read you know, I, they saw the spider-man movie and they want to come in and read spider-man and you, you hand them the essential volume or the epic collection of those first few stories. And if they have been born any time since 1962, they really don't get it. <laughs> you know? Like the, the pacing is so different, even though those stories are there. And I have this tremendous fondness, not that I was reading it in 1962 either, but um, yeah, it's not necessarily the best place to start. If you've never read comics before. I, I will concede it's not the best place to start. I mean, right. that, that'll get us like really into sort of what our attachments are to these older comics. Mm -hmm. And one of the mm -hmm. things I was thinking about was that I don't know if I'd appreciate Golden Age comics as much as I do, which, you know, it's not like I'm a huge fan, but I do appreciate a number of them. Mm -hmm. um, unless I was sort of a superhero, sort of ACA fan first. Because I did sort of, you know, become a fan of like contemporary comics and then Silver Age comics and then went back and sort of yeah. read a bunch of Golden Age stuff for teaching and scholarship purposes. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if I'd had the same reaction if I just like approached it like, you yeah. know, the first Superman comics I read were like Golden Age superhero comics. Yeah, so and know. that's it. Same, same here. I don't really go back and I'm not working on a dissertation. I don't go back and go, ooh, I really want to sit down and read All Winter Squad for the next week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's gonna be, I, gonna be a lot of racial characters. <laughs> I, mean, I I have I have that historic appreciation for it and a certain love of seeing the development of that stuff and how that took place. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very different than just like, oh, I really enjoy this as as a work of art or whatever. Yeah, it's you might not need to look at it as a work of art, but more as an artifact. Of, yeah. Yes, it's from a time and place, but it built this other thing that we appreciate now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love teaching that stuff in my in my pop culture history class, just kind of using that as a lens to talk about the war and what was going on in America. And you know, I used to talk about propaganda. And from there, I lead into racial stereotypes. And you know, so it, it, I find it very rich as a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I, I haven't assigned them to read all Winter Squad. <laughs> well, I think I think John's calling it an artifact is really good because yeah, um, I was sort of one of those weeks where I, I really do wish Hannah was here because you know she'll she'll joke all well, the time. Have these about, weeks did I hear that? <laughs> no, 
episode. Not rare. <laughs> oh my god, she's not here. We can suddenly this show's just going to be about Riverdale. But, 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 sure, but, I'm happy with that too. I, I'm a huge Riverdale fan. Um, but um, but no, Hannah will often say that you know she'll she makes fun of her time period. Uh, Hannah's a Victorianist, so everything that she reads professionally is 200 300 years old and she knows that they are problematic in many many ways that if this is the first thing that you ever you have ever read and you're starting in 2020 it's going to be weird and, mm-hmm. and you know we're not going back that far but the world was a very different place in 1939 yeah. <laughs> and and um we had different cultural sensibilities and i really do believe that picking up an action comics number one, uh, Detective 27, those tell you something about the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things I really like about sort of consuming older popular culture, and, you know, I, I watch a lot of old TV and that kind of stuff too. And I just find it, it's a connection between you and that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, my dad grew up reading, you know, Blackhawk comics and yeah. Captain Marvel and Hawkeye. talks to me about it. And, you know, it's a connection to where people were in that place and time. And especially sort of the first few years of superhero comics just make me mm-hmm. very excited. I mean, seeing people kind of throw everything against the wall and play yeah. with this new concept of the superhero is just, I find it super exciting. But again, I am approaching it as like an act of fan, right? You know, someone who loves the superhero genre, loves studying the superhero genre. So to go back and see how some of the themes are there right at the beginning mm-hmm. is super exciting to me. And just the sheer wackiness of it. That, that yeah. What you're saying, that let's throw everything against the the wall. You know, here, I'm the red bee. My superpower is I keep bees in my belt. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading a great one on Digital Comics Museum a few weeks ago that was the moth. Either of you guys encountered that one. He wears like a, a moth costume and it's sort of like green brown. It's very attractive. No, I haven't. I'll have to look that up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I might have that. encountered an article about it, but I'm <gasps> struggling to recall yeah. it. Wow. Have you you seen the the books like the regrettable heroes? I think there have been two volumes of them. Some of those are marvelous. Um, I I, want to throw in just, you know, my anecdote of little Wayne discovering the golden age. I couldn't tell you what grade I was in, but you know, I I was reading comics as a kid. Like I I literally don't remember not reading comics. So it's always been there and I'm older than you guys. So late sixties, early seventies, and uh, we got one of those catalogs in school from Scholastic where you can order books. And there was a book called All in Color for a Dime. Mm. Oh, yeah. I know and, that. And that's probably went in there. Yeah. You know, and, and that's it. So early 70s, whenever that book came out. Um, and it was about comics. And I ordered my paperback copy of All in Color for a Dime, which is probably the you know, has led me to the path that we are here today. Yeah. On. I mean, that, that, that's the book that started my, my path for this. The sudden order, a chain of events that yeah, would day result. Know, and, and, and I read that when I was 10, 11, 12 years old or whatever. And, you know, it's a collection of essays about old comics and, and not necessarily academic, but it certainly was. Some of them are. I yeah. have a copy of that somewhere. Yeah. And. And that was the first place in my life that I was consciously aware of. Wait a minute. There were comics before I was alive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I will never have the opportunity to read these. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, And and here I am. Um, 
But after that, I became aware of things like the DC 100 page spectaculars and in the treasury editions, they would reprint some of those stories. Like I had the treasury edition of action comics number one. So I read that speed Saunders story and the Zatara story. And <laughs> yeah, we should come to that in a second, but before, yeah. before we do, just cause action for anybody, you know, we sort of started in the middle cause we're us, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, for people who might be yeah. unfamiliar with the terms. I, there's um, we should we should define what golden age is when, when, yeah, when the golden age of comics becomes yeah. because, because it's sort of weird. Like if you hear the term golden age of comics, you would uh, you would assume and you knew nothing. I assume you'd think that it was either when the first comic started, which is not true. Or you would assume it is the best age of comics. Also not, you know, arguably not true. You know, that's, deba- <laughs> that's debatable. But we should define when the go- when the golden age is. I think this is a true question because a lot of what the context we've been putting it in is superheroes. Yeah. Right. But it's not have, just superheroes. Yes. Right. right. We have the golden age of superheroes. Yeah. We also have the golden age of comics and they're really two different things. But they overlap. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. They overlap. Yeah. But uh as comic book academics, uh, well, more superhero academics, we always think in terms of the superhero timeline and mm-hmm. kind of have blinders on everything else that was going on. And a lot of the right. histories you find about comic books uh, focus on the superheroes. Uh, and so we should acknowledge all the other stuff that was going on and uh, were part of this golden age. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, part of why it's called the golden age of comics is because it was the most popular, like it was the height of comics popularity mm-hmm. in America, right? And then yeah. when you have oh, the yeah. comics go, then you have the dip in popularity that happens after that, and they've never really recovered that popularity. So that's part of where, like, the kind of nostalgic label of golden age kind of comes into play. Mm-hmm. So, roughly speaking, usually, <laughs> with with some variance depending on on who you talk to um the golden age is probably the one that is easiest to pinpoint for probably most scholars and most fans but roughly speaking we're talking about 1938 to 1955 well, one of the questions i wanted to bring up in this discussion because 38 is when we have the introduction of superman but you had at least uh, five years of comics before then at least yeah. well you had five years um, of you had five years of Comics as we know comics before then, mm. and if you include strips, you've got a hundred oh, sure. years. Yeah, and strips is a include, whole different ballgame. Yeah, yeah. And if you include everything McCloud counts, you've uh, yeah, McCloud yeah. or our friend Chris right. Gobbler counts. No, you go back to so the dawn talking, of time. <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking about the format of the comic book. Yeah, right. as we know it, uh, the pa- the yeah. pamphlet format. Yeah, um, famous famous funnies so, number, number one. 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 Yeah, and so do you want to start in 1933, or do you want to start with superiors? And some people call what became before superheroes, the platinum age. Yeah. This gets into the minutia and it gets very granular, yeah. which is a lot of fun for scholars, but right. not for everyone else. Yeah, I, I guess in like I've, I've heard the term platinum age. I guess in my mind, I kind of start from famous funnies and just like certainly the success of Superman and action comics launched the industry into the making millions of dollars. But as you say, there was a good you know, what four or five years before that where comics mm-hmm. were coming out. Famous funnies published. published in thirty four. So yes, yeah. So, so we, we have, you know, there were detective stories and, and crime stories. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that was coming out in the comics at that time were mirroring, mirroring what was happening in pulps and magazines, detective magazines and muscle magazines and romance magazines and radio shows. Um, So, yes, there was a, a, say, it was successful. You know, they were continuing to be published to make money before Superman happened. But Superman certainly launched it into a whole different, you know, stratosphere. 
Mm-hmm. So, so in my brain, I tend to think of the golden age incorporating all of that. Mm-hmm. Platinum, platinum does certainly separate it from the advent of the superhero. But I think um, that's, I think that, I think that separation is, it's convenient because you know, like if you're, if you get to 1938, 1939, pretty much all of us are going to agree we're in the golden age. There might be some yeah. rough things like, you know, there's before famous funnies. We always say famous funnies is the, is this first comic. But there's a book called the, funnies the, funnies. Was the first one. Yeah. 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 And there, I mean, so it's are we a, talking about yeah. 1935, 34? Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't know well, that we need to do that here. Yeah, but um, but somewhere in the 30s through roughly, roughly speaking, I like to say 1955. Uh, so for me, the end of the golden age is the um, the um, foundation of the Comics Code Authority, yeah. which we've talked yes. about briefly on yes. other shows. So um, subcommittee hearings in 54 and then in, code yeah. first appeared in 55. Right. So which changes the way comic books look not just in superheroes, but also by that time, superheroes weren't even the popular anymore. So mm-hmm. by that time you're talking about horror comics and um, romance comics, detective crime comics, true crime comics. Those are all. Right, and you have a resurgence of superheroes in part because of the code kind of damaging right. yeah. those other genres. So, yeah. you know, then we talk yeah. about the silver age being the reintroduction of the flash, which was the first kind of big superhero reintroduction in the postcode mm-hmm. era. And that's when the silver age starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So those are roughly the time period we're talking about. I actually find it interesting when I, when I took my, um, when I was doing my, um, my PhD, um, exams, um, which, for for people who don't know how, how exams work, um, if you've never done a PhD, at some point during your PhD, after you're done with classes, before you write your dissertation, there's a period where um, people make you read a um, hundred books, and then they stick you in a room and they make you answer questions till they get to, till they get sick of asking you questions. <laughs> and, and, and for a lot of people that I know that went through for literature, including myself, it makes you hate reading. Yes, I like yes, I've never read novels. <laughs> for real enjoyment since then. Yes, it, it, it is. It is. It is a, it is the part it's academic hazing. It is the part of the PhD process where we crush your spirits and make you hate what you love. Um, and, and we all do it. So, so at the point where I was doing mine, we got to the part where, you know, where we were discussing my, my specialization of superheroes and, and comic books. And they were asking me questions and without, um, without thinking about it, um, I had used terms, golden age, silver age, bronze age, modern age. And at some point, one of my professors, someone who's not a comic book scholar, but was, you know, was on my exam committee says to me, I have a question for you. And it's like, that's what we're here for. And he said, <laughs> okay, you say golden age, silver age, modern age, bronze age. And I was like, well, and you know, I was like, yeah, something like that. And got him out of order, but he's like, okay, why? Like when is you talk about the modern age, to him, he was like, modern age means the, you know, the 1900s to about 1945. And I was like, no, no, I'm starting in 1985. And he's like, you just said that. Like, and I was like, sure. And he goes, well, when, I mean, are these defined? And I was like, I mean, roughly. And he says, well, when are the ages? And I just off the top of my head said, uh, 1935-ish to 55, 55 to 70, 70 to 85, 85 to now. And he's like, how do you know that? After, is that written down somewhere? And it's like, I n- no, it's just, 
He's like, well, it's where'd true. you learn that? And I was like, I've known that since I was seven. <laughs> well, not quite. I mean, the, 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 the bronze, the modern age didn't happen. Yeah, until I started, was right? <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I was like, yeah, I've, I've, I've known that since. And he's like, well, like, where's that? And his question is like, where's that written down? And I was just like, I, I, I don't know. We just, we all kind of feel that. And it's something that we take for granted as comic scholars. And even as dedicated comic fans, like like it's not just an academic term. If you are listening to this show and you're just a big comic book nerd, you're like, why are they discussing this? Everybody knows this. Apparently, yeah. everybody doesn't. So that's why yeah. we're, we're going over. But actually, yeah, I've run into this a number of times where, you know, you have to cite a definitive source for that stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of different people cite it, obviously. But like in terms of like the definitive source, it's kind of hard. Mm-hmm. So I've actually been writing about this topic for my dissertation as I oh, covering okay. part, I'm writing on my portion on the history of superheroes and uh there's this vague sense that in the 60s as fan culture was building up and they had all the fanzines and were starting to move towards the conventions they were looking to codify and it seems like by the time you get the overstreet price guide is when you start having that those errors established oh, clearly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That makes so sense. I remember mm-hmm. I first encountered these terms in Wizard the comics magazine because they had a price guide and they had it divided by ages and yeah. I had no idea what those meant at the time, but that was my first encounter with them was more on the um, economic side yeah. of you know, well, how, of how much the comics cost See, I, versus the content in the history. Because I mean, it is legitimizing force, right? So I mean, that is yeah. tied up in the collector market for sure. I, I yeah. am curious where the terms first appeared though. And once mm-hmm. again, this gets into academic questions. Like yeah, it, does, seen, it doesn't matter to the general I mean, audience. But well, it does, John. You might know ancient Greeks with people trying to trace it and say that they've seen it. And like, uh, there are there are instances where people sure. start seeing them comment zines and in letter letter columns pages. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Where where there were yeah. there were people saying stuff like. You know, I, it wasn't something people were saying during the golden age, but mm-hmm. definitely during the yeah. silver age with the reemergence of the flash and Hawkman and green and or reemergence of the new flash, the new green lantern, the reemergence yeah. of Hawkman. There are, there are people saying stuff like, wow, it's like, you know, it's like we've entered a silver age of comics is, you know, there yeah. was a golden age. Yeah. So, so they were, they were definitely aware that they were at a different point by the silver age. In some ways, it sounds like such a Stan Lee, you know, like bringing back Captain America, <laughs> one of the heroes of the golden age, you know, just that, that bombast <laughs> that he does. Uh, I, and he yeah, almost I, certainly did that. Yeah, I'm sure he, he did certainly, that. Now, whether, in, in, it, not, I, not I, even four people in a writer's meeting, he uh, like Stan absolutely yeah. says, <laughs> <laughs> believers, because I'm sure he called it like everybody he knew Everybody that. in the office that. Um, well, it's it's, it's but, modeled after other nostalgias too, you know, yes. like film nostalgia, for instance. And mm-hmm. yeah, yes, Golden Age of Hollywood. Yes, I mean, because I, I I have to believe that All in Color for a Dime referred to it as the Golden Age when I was reading that. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I, I just I, can't, yeah, can't I imagine. It seems like by the seventies there was some codification going on. Yeah, yeah, and that was that, generally agree- so. generally agreed upon. Uh, yeah, you will not find. Here's where it was first written down and how they divided the ages. They, it's not like they got a committee together and decided these <laughs> right, things. Right. It was, it was fans. Today they would. Yeah. yeah today they would. But it was fans communicating through fanzines or at conventions, uh, talking to retailers. And, uh, we should also say in the seventies, that's when they started to move comics off the newsstand to the specialty shops. Yeah. And those retailers probably want some way to organize stuff. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where this, you know, it just bubbled up at that period. Mm-hmm. So uh, jumping back uh, 10, 15 minutes or whatever, we pointing out that there's genres other than the superhero in the, the 1940s. So we should probably touch on that. What other yeah. genres were there? What else was going on other than superheroes? <laughs> it's not just that there were other genres. Superheroes weren't even the dominant genre. Like they were, they definitely, uh, there were titles that were very popular. Superman, mm-hmm. Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, now known as Shazam, Shazam, in case you want, yeah. uh, if anyone's <laughs> not familiar with that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Superman, yeah, Captain Superman, Captain Marvel, Captain America, Wonder yeah. Woman, Batman are by far more popular superheroes than anybody else. There are yeah, other well, kind uh, of, Captain Marvel Jr. and and Mary Marvel yeah. books as well. Yeah. So, but those are kind of outliers to yeah. Yeah. all the, the Red was not that popular, and <laughs> all those other heroes didn't sell nearly as much as these many of these other genres. Mm-hmm. And, and and when they did, it was on and off. You know, you'd have um, yeah. I mean, like they had now they had their they had their fans, but um, what was well, what was they kept their publications, so someone was buying. Right. Yeah, right, right. They they um at least from national publications, which became DC Comics, and timely publications, which became well timely slash Marvel slash, slash Atlas Atlas. <laughs> um, Marvel Comics has a fascinating um. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating back history of changing its name by the week to avoid taxes. I mean, it, it, it is a dark, it is a dark, horrible history of really shady business practices. But they were also publishing Captain America and and um, and Human Torch and um, Namor the Submariner. And these comics were popular in that they sort of maintained, um, whereas there are a lot of Golden Age heroes that would exist for, you know, six months to 18 months and then just be done. Um, there, um, many well, of them. And, and a lot of the comics, mm-hmm. a lot of the comics like action were anthologies as well. You yeah, have, you yeah. know, an eight page Superman story genres. with mm-hmm. multiple genres all in the same book. Right. And that's what I wanted to get to, because we were talking about it. one of the things that I find interesting is if you go and you find republications of, of action comics number one today a lot of times it's just that superman story if you look it up on the dc universe app it's just that superman story which is like 12 pages of very loosely related content (laughs) because it was intended to be a newspaper strip and they just kind of they sold it and for 150 dollars and i mean there's the history of superman is weird but um that first superman story itself especially is not very coherent in a lot of ways and the other comics in action number one are um, there's a killer Zatara story in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always for, encourage students yeah. to read those extra stories when I'm teaching mm-hmm. that comic because I give them the full one and I don't know that they ever do. But I do encourage them to. Mm-hmm. I love Zatara. Yes, Zatara. <laughs> Zatara for fans um, of modern comics is Zatanna. It's her father. But he yeah. first appears in the same he first appears in Action Comics number one, the same comic that was the first appearance of Superman. And um, he did not end up being as famous, though. I do think he's yeah. great. <laughs> and what there was, what, Speed Saunders, who was an adventurer. Speed Saunders isn't. Yep. Yeah, and there's, there's and, some, and, there's and, some and Westerns in, some, in there. Yeah. And in, in some of the modern versions, uh, Hawkwoman is a descendant of Speed Saunders. 
Mm-hmm. You can kind of see, though, from the other stuff that's included in some of those anthologies where there'll be one superhero story and sort of a number of other stories that a lot of mm-hmm. those other stories will be modeled sort of after pulps, right? Either pulp yes. novels or radio shows and things. Mm-hmm. So you can well, see why we link the Golden Age to the superhero, because the superhero is something new. It's yeah. something that is germane to the comics medium. That, and that's why we tie it to the success of the comics medium, right? So it's, uh, you're saying that those other stories seem more polished? And I think that that makes sense because those are based on kind of an established genre, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Superman, they're trying to figure Bro. this dang thing out. And that's, but I mean, that's why it's bad, but that's always why it's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. But yeah. Superman's also very not, poppy. Yeah. Superman's very much trying yeah, to sure. be a pop story. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it also is something very different. Mm-hmm. And there's other stories. They're not just um, imitating the other genres. Sometimes they're plagiarizing other stories. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Straight up plagiarizing things. Yes. Yeah. This is like a, you know, a medium that's trying to find its feet, right? So, I mean, they are, I mean, across all of the genres, they're throwing stuff at the wall, right? And filtering, like, stuff from each other. And, you know, I mean, you have, like, Archie starts and then suddenly you have, like, 10 other, 20 other, you know, teen humor books, right? Mm -hmm. And that that plagiarizing thing, I know through the the publication, like, both both Marvel and DC were part of larger publishing empires. And Mm -hmm. I know, you know, Donenfeld, who was the, the head of DC, and, and Martin Goodman, who was the head of Marvel, you, they were buying short stories for their pulps all the time. And in their mm-hmm. mind, they owned that. And they, yeah. would, they, would, they would change the author's name and reprint it in a different magazine. So you, to them, you, they were adapting that stuff in comics form. It's not plagiarizing. We own it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's a danger being too like uh, rose-colored glasses nostalgic about this era due to its predatory work conditions. Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that's in writing a dissertation that becomes hard is well, okay, so the two names that everybody knows, or the four names that everybody knows, are Siegel, Schuster, Simon, and Kirby are the ones that people like sort of gravitate to, and I guess Kane and Finger. <laughs> And I guess Kane and Finger. Yeah. Um, Finger should be. But, so, but, uh, is going to like rise up out of the grave as a zombie and kill you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or he'll have Bill Finger do it for him. But, yeah. Yes, that's a joke. Yes. Um, but but um, what, what I found interesting is like when I'm doing research, a lot of the names that and this is true of both the pulps, which I also do work with and the golden age comics, the names of the creative teams are often largely entirely fictional. They just yeah. write a name on it and whoever or is not, writing it that week is just or, under yeah, or not at all under that name. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Or if they're labeled, if they're labeled at all, but there are a lot of them that are just complete, complete fictions as to, yeah. you know, who the creator is. Um, and that was, yeah. You know, and some of them are just like a lot of times their initials. They're just, they're just sound. They're, they're intended to sound literary, <laughs> so it makes it makes it makes credit hard. Um, but these are, you know, we, we talk about the way that Siegel and Schuster got screwed out of the billion dollar Superman empire, but that's just how. I mean, it wasn't just them. It was work for hire. That's what people. Yeah, everybody, everybody got screwed out of something. Mm-hmm. There's more egregious because of what that character became, but. But yeah, mm-hmm. but also, yeah, so but to get back to action, you know, there's there's each story is eight pages, six to 12 pages. So eight, eight ish pages long. And there's and then there's 
one page humor strips in it. it it's a it's a remarkable book. There, there's like two two pages of text in it because mm-hmm. for for mailing charges, like you had to have yeah. text pieces in to get cheaper mm-hmm. mailing charges. So most Golden Age comics had had text pages. That's where Stan Lee got his start as a writer was writing the text pages in at Marvel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Timely. Or Timely. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and Martin and Martin Goodman look cool. So you know. <laughs> so Nepotism at its finest. Um, one of the other things that I find interesting about the time period is, and this comes up a lot, where um this is sort of the sort of a pushback against sort of modern comics um, or modern comic fans. I should say the um, something happens. And I wrote about this briefly in the blog, which is every time I don't like some modern thing, because it's just someone who doesn't understand the character, just doing violence for violence sake. And not, you know, um, I am not a fan of the Zack Snyder DC movies. Um, I think man of steel is awful <laughs> um yeah think, you're not um, gonna get an argument for me there yeah, and, and i think batman versus superman sad, is, just yeah. so sad i and i thought it was awful until i saw bvs which i just felt was unwatchable and i, was just I like, couldn't watch it because man of steel made me too sad even yeah, as a superhero scholar i couldn't it ruined three days of my life yeah yeah so um but what ends up happening there, and um, this is this happens with a lot of fans. It's like, well, if you didn't like this movie, you just didn't understand. You know, this is how Superman was back in the day. And you don't understand real comics. And it's like, OK, first off, man used to carry a gun. Yeah. For, first off. Yeah. Batman used to carry a gun. It's like, I'm me. I assure you, I understand all comics <laughs> better than with the exception of the three people who are on this yeah. show right now, I, 99.9% of the population. Like, yeah. trust me, I, yeah. I've wasted my life on this. Okay, I, I, guarantee, I guarantee you I've read more comics than most people alive. Yes, I, I have trouble remembering my phone number because I know Johnny Quick's speed formula. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is this is this is a problem. So that said, I when you say, yeah, what Superman was violent back in the day it's like he wasn't just violent back in the day. Yeah. He killed people. He wasn't just violent. And it, yes, he was a different character. But you all because these are the same people who complain. Well, comic books didn't used to be political. It's like, yes, they were. They were political for a time period that you don't understand now, which is sort of the point we were making at the very beginning of this episode where we said one of the reasons we like reading these things is it's really nice to be able to to look at 1938 through the lens of two young Jewish men living in the projects, just trying to tell this pulp story about a guy who can jump, (laughs) you know, <laughs> well, I was. Uh, yeah. I'm writing something about um, basketball right now, and right here is this book called "Jump for Joy: Jazz Basketball and Black Culture in 1930s America" by Gina Capani Tiberi. And there was a great, like, little section about Superman in it, and sort of yeah. the significance of his ability to jump, sort of in the 1930s, and how jumping fits into the culture of the 1930s. Wow! Mm-hmm. And that significance of him being able to jump over skyscrapers, being unconstrained by the city is one of my absolute favorite things about the early Superman comics, sort of his interactions with the city and his interactions with modern technology. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's so, you can read these comics and just see, I mean, it's partly comes from my literary background, I think. I mean, you know, we study a lot of kind of literature from kind of that period and the period between the wars, you know, that's a great period for, you know, American literature, for British literature. 
So I know some of that cultural context quite well. And sort of that feeds into my reading of some of these, these early Superman comics and early Batman comics. But, but yeah, just that fantasy of being able to overcome that urban milieu. And of course, the secret identity fantasy as well, as much as it's super sexist, it's sort of like he gets this secret identity just so he can have like a one up on Lois Lane kind of basically. Yeah. Oh, it's totally, yeah. It, it is totally, particularly once you, yeah. once you move on past those early comics where like for the first three years, Superman or Clark is just really, really upset that, that Lois doesn't want to fuck him. I mean, that's like literally his character is just, he's this yeah. guy who's grumpy about not being able to get laid. And then once you move towards the end of the golden age and especially during the silver age, Superman is a dick. Like, he is just an <laughs> asshole. And like, and it's just him. Like every story in particularly in Lois's comic, which is called Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, um, because she was not important enough to have her own identity separate from her boyfriend. Um, <laughs> but particularly in those stories, he is an ass to her. Like, and she takes it because she always learns the lesson that he's being mean to her for her own good. But that's like half the stories. And why does he hide his identity from her? No good reason. Just because he likes fucking with her. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and that's definitely present in like, you know, the 1938 version of Superman. Yeah. But there's also a romance to him, too. You know, he's always catching her out of the sky and sort mm-hmm. of giving her that freedom of the air to share with him. And she's a very sort of dynamic character in those comics as well. Yes. I mean, certainly in terms of she's not the kind of domesticated woman of the 50s who all she wants is marriage. She's mm-hmm. not that character at all. In the 30s well, she also the- wants that. She's she's weird because she's trans. It's it's weird to read them. This is when you have to, like, put your your 1938 hat on in order to read these books. Right. Because we read them. If you read them as a reader in 2020. You're going to, particularly in that first issue, less so by the time she's appearing in like Action Comics 5, 6, she's kind of toned down a bit. But in Action Comics number one, she's bitchy to him. Oh, yeah. She's just mean to him. And like, yeah. And and then you like sort of, you know, and you're like, what does he even see in her? Because she's not she barely has any lines, but like all all of her lines to him are just mean. Like she's basically like, you're not a real man, Clark. That's why I don't like you. Like she actually says shit like that to yeah. him. And it's weird. Um, and then she like softens a little bit and she's like, I, you know, I, I, I would give you a chance, but I'm just really into Superman. So it becomes that. But and but like the fact that she's, you know, in those original comics, her job is she's not a reporter yet. She's a sob sister. Her job is she's the woman they um, they hire to write the the Lonely Hearts column. And she wants to be a reporter more than anything. She is, you know, the reason she's in danger all the time is because without superpowers, if Lois hears that there's a, you know, a shootout at the at the bank. Lois gets up from her desk and runs to the bank to to cover it. You know, she just she's just in the middle of danger because she is not um, a demure, girly girl woman of 1938 in 1938 she's extremely progressive for that now it's 2020 now. And so a lot of her, you know, a lot of the stuff where she's just fawning over Superman feels kind of dated but you have to like think about when they're reading it for when for when they're reading and writing it she's super progressive well you know that coincides with a lot of other things that were happening in representations of women in pop culture during that time i mean you had like sort of a surge of empowered women in the 30s that you know carried through the war as long as we needed women to be strong and then obviously you know, <laughs> less encouragement in those roles moving forward yep 
Yeah, which is probably why, I mean, I argue in my dissertation that that's part of why the reversal happens in the in the 50s, you know, in the in the Silver Age. It's sort of a the war's over now. Get back in the kitchen and make some babies, you know, is kind of how many of the characters went. And even then, Lois resisted that a lot better than a lot of the other characters did. She not Yeah, I mean, I don't want to totally throw like Superman's girlfriend Lois Lay in the comic book under the bus because as much as it's super problematic, it's a weird as fuck comic, too. So, like, I mean, this is a comic that also features, you know. Lois Lane putting on magic ring to like turn into a Kryptonian insect to defend the earth while Superman is away. So I mean, it's it's a complicated comic book. <laughs> we should we're, we're gonna have to do a Silver Age show eventually too because yeah. yeah, Lois uh, of the two, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane and and Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. I actually like the Lois one better. I think it's an amazing book, but but it does have problems. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's got, you know, Superman spanking Lois for breaking into the, well, having his Superman robot spank Lois for breaking into the Fortress of Solitude. And it's got the stuff where she turns into a Kryptonian insect and becomes a supergirl. So, you know, complicated. It also has him fucking his cousin. Yes, that happens. There is a, there is a canonical issue of the Lois Lane comic where Superman has sex with Supergirl because the... 60s were weird dude <laughs> are you sure you're not thinking about the tijuana bible version i think that's nope. got the sex with superman and her having sex with her actual father but um, yes no yeah. no this is this there's well, i don't know if we say for the silver silver age show there's a point where lois discovers that superman has a secret wife and she spends some time trying to figure out who it is and then it turns out that the secret wife is supergirl and they're not actually married. It's just a Supergirl and Superman have both been um, corrupted by red kryptonite. So they spend four days thinking that they are husband and wife oh, and well, shacked up in the fortress. Of, you yeah. can't, and, uh, well, but they're shacked up in the, in the fortress of solitude. They were with, drunk on red kryptonite <laughs> yeah, for, for, for four days. Telling everybody they're married. Superman. Yeah. So, and the comic just said, and you know, and they, they create robot kids and they're telling everybody they're married for like four days till it wears off. And I'm like, I don't, I mean, they're just hanging out there as husband and wife. Something probably happened. Yeah. They were like watching television and drinking milkshakes. Sure. All, that's exactly what they'd be yeah. doing. And trying to kill Lois. That's part of the story. Um, but anyway, um, we keep diverging also, into the silver age and we need yeah, to talk yeah. about more golden age comics. Cause I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about like the, the complaint that the same people who complain about, well, you know, they used to be more violent, blah, blah, blah. And they weren't political. They were political because I think one of the things that I was talking about when when we had that Facebook conversation um, uh, back when I was complaining was my quite possibly my favorite Superman story ever is Superman in the slums, which is brilliant. Um, Superman in the slums is a story about Superman discovers uh, or Clark Kent is basically covering a trial where some kids been arrested and the judge wants to throw the book at him and the kid's mother is like, but he's just doing it because we're hungry. You know, we're poor and, yeah. and he's trying to feed the family. And so Clark goes and investigates and he finds these people living in the slums of the city metropolis, um, arguably Cleveland where I'm from. Um, uh, Siegel and Schuster were from Cleveland, so early Metropolis looks a lot like where I'm from. I just want to interrupt you that um, yeah. in, if you're not aware, in Canada, we were always told that um, that Schuster is from Canada. Really? We have a Heritage Minute um, proving this fact with a total false history of Lois being a real person who lives in Canada that inspired the real Lois Lane. This was something that was on television like throughout my childhood. If you ask any Canadian about it, they've seen it. Wow. Wow. 
is it? I mean, did he live there for a little bit that I don't know about, or is it? Yes. Just, he, he, yes. No, so, Schuster <laughs> did live in Canada. He might have been. I'm, I'm forgetting if he was born there or if the family ever was even born young. here. I yeah. think he just yeah, lived I, here I'm, for a while so, when uh, he was a kid. If you want all the background on Siegel and Schuster, I recommend a book by Brad Ricca called Superboys. And it's basically okay. a biography of them. And so, yeah, Schuster spent at least a few years in Canada before moving to Cleveland. Uh, but it was uh, well before he would have been, you know, model, uh, taking women to model as uh, characters. Uh, that was all done in Cleveland. OK, well, anyway, so he goes to the slums where these kids are living and finds out that there's a whole gang of kids who are basically stealing to help their families make ends meet. And they're paying a fortune to live in these projects, which are falling apart. So Superman devises a solution. He tells everybody to leave and he makes them all go outside the city, you know, the few city blocks where the projects are. And then he just demolishes them by hand. He just knocks over like four or five city blocks and they call in the army to stop him. And he's like, leave me alone. And he's like, what are you? And he's like, well, you can't, you're destroying private property. He's like, I'm, I'm Superman, dude, what are you going to do? And so they <laughs> shoot at him and he doesn't care. And he just, he just wrecks the city. And then they're like, why did you do that? And he's like, now rebuild it. And then he leaves and yeah. he, and Superman forces the government to rebuild this, you know, rebuild all the crappy property and like, let people move back in there to get, cause Superman's a massive socialist and that's just who he is. That's such a wonderful <laughs> contrast from, you know, what the stories would be even kind of a year after that where superheroes become these protectors of private property uh particularly batman batman is yeah. ultra mm-hmm. is ultra capitalist yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. um batman I've been reading totally, a lot of early batman it's always yeah. about rich people and they're murdered because they have jewels or someone wants their money mm-hmm. batman's all about protecting uh, protecting um the factory owners from the from the criminals the criminals yeah, who they, are always, robbing they always have that contradictory thing going on too where like let a few millionaires die first just so yeah. you can experience that joy but then he'll save the final one <laughs> yeah uh you want to talk about the crime comics in the room uh, for a bit we, well, i want to touch on crime uh, and probably romance too uh before we get into that uh let's sure. just a rundown of like how like what all the genres that existed there were or the best we can name uh, because crime horror which were uh romance funny animals western uh, mm-hmm. Comedians would have comic books. Yeah, uh, teen, really teen romance comedy. Yeah, teen mm-hmm. romance, which is a little different than romance. That's where uh, I mean, it's that's really Archie developing this whole genre into unto itself. Because um, Archie comics were a little raunchier when they first start um, at the very beginning. They're, I mean, they weren't. They're not porn, but they but they were originally mostly just romance comics. Um, in the blog I published, I, I posted a picture of like an early picture of Veronica, basically, you know, yeah. stunning herself topless. <laughs> and it's a whole bunch of Archie trying to get laid in the, in those early comics. And then they sort of become a lot more sanitized after the Westerns. Club. I don't know if we mentioned Westerns. Yeah. There were a lot of Westerns. A lot of Westerns. Mm-hmm. A lot of Westerns. Science fiction. Science fiction was very popular. Science fiction. Does Disney count as funny animal, or are they almost on a thing unto themselves? Uh, I count that as both. funny animal, but uh, yeah, yeah, technically funny animal, but they're they're such a juggernaut as well. Yeah, That's, uh, those were some of the best selling comics, especially outside the United States, mm-hmm. uh, where that really cemented the popularity of Donald Duck. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Duck is an international icon that we don't understand in the United States. We know who he is here, <laughs> but he is an icon in like Germany. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and we're we're being very United States centric here, just in yeah. general. Like there, there, there's a much different comic tradition in Germany, yeah. France, Japan, yeah. um, than. Yeah. I mean, U.S. and Canada are effectively the same country as far as comics go, I think. Um, well, I was we had some of our own comics, um, mm-hmm. especially during World War Two, because we couldn't. get uh, Anyway, a lot of reasons having to do with the war. But um, I was going to say before um, related to the Superman thing, we had mm-hmm. a set of postage stamps of like great Canadian superheroes. And he was included there. Oh. We claim him as Canadian. <laughs> he was included alongside Nelvana of the North and Johnny Canuck and Captain Canuck and all. All of these wonderful Canadian superheroes that you may or may not know about. <laughs> so are there apocryphal stories about Metropolis being based on Toronto or something? <laughs> I didn't quite go that far, but like, yeah, I was definitely, yeah, I, I remember having those stamps when I was a kid. Oh, cool. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. So we had, I mean, we should talk about certainly the crime comics and, and the horror uh, comics. Yeah. Cause those are the ones that essentially end the golden age with Wortham. Yeah. So, oh, but they're actually, not ones I like as much. So you go ahead. <laughs> well, well, let's leave what you like for last because we can we can happy it we can happy it back up. <laughs> yeah, for charting kind of the history, you have uh, the 1938 or the 1930s, then the war, and uh, that's where the heyday of superheroes. Uh, they're immensely popular because they're all patriotic. But after the war, superheroes become less and less popular. Uh, most of their titles disappear. Uh, the last few issues of Green Lantern. Green Lantern was actually replaced by Rex the Wonder Dog as the main feature. <laughs> and actually, the only feature. Rex Beyond, the, last, like, the last three issues just feature Rex the Wonder Dog, even though it's a Green Lantern comic. Uh, Captain America's not in his last three issues either. Yeah. Uh, well, then weird tales. That's a weird experiment in the 50s when they brought it back and it became Captain America's Weird Tales for three issues yeah. before it became oh, no, Weird no, I'm Tales. Talking about, I'm, t- I'm talking about before that. The, yeah, there's oh, a point even before, before that one. Yeah, bef- before he comes, like, after the war, uh, Bucky gets shot. Not Bucky doesn't get blown up. That's a, that's a, the thing where Bucky that's got later. blown up, that's a later he invention a- that, um, they got gets retconned, but cap, but cap, the Bucky gets shot. Cap's girlfriend becomes his new sidekick. Uh, yeah. Uh, golden, golden girl. Golden girl. Yes. And then those comics stop selling. So Captain America becomes more of an anthology comic. Originally Captain America was an anthology comic, but all the stories were Captain America. So he starts having backup features and then he's, and then he's just having backup features where he's introducing four stories. And then yeah. for like the last two of them, he's not even in those. Yeah. So <laughs> then he comes back as a commie smasher later. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. As the superheroes die off, you have uh, in, in the late forties, the rise of the crime and then the horror comics. Yes. Um, true crime and which may or may not have been true, but also <laughs> um, very much derived from the detective fiction mm-hmm. pulp magazines and, and, and been some, some of, of that, these stories. Yeah, there have been some of that since the 1930s. Like crime does not pay that like, crime comics weren't new, but they really came into their own after the war era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In part because you had sort of an older audience kind of reading comics that were kind of, you know, expecting some more explicit content. A lot of, mm-hmm. you know, people during World War II, soldiers during World War II read comics. And when they come mm-hmm. back from the war, they want to continue reading comics. Well, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's an important yeah. point that you know, there's that perception of comics being for kids. And yeah. at the time, that wasn't really true. They, I mean, it was. Kids were reading it, but you, most of the GIs were reading it. Comics were shipped overseas to the GIs you, in the yeah. millions, probably. You know, and, mm-hmm. and they came back reading that stuff. And like I say, they wanted more adult content. Uh, you know, one of the things that 
Bill Gaines in the in the Senate subcommittee hearings 54 that didn't go over well is he believed he was publishing comics for adults. Yes. And and everybody who was grilling him believed they were for kids. And you read those transcripts, you can see they're talking on two different levels. <laughs> they mm-hmm. both have different perceptions um, that that really negatively well, impacts least, the way I mean, he's perceived. Even him perceiving that he's publishing comics for teenagers would have been ununderstandable to certain people at the time, right? Yes. Comics just were mm-hmm. still perceived as like for the under tens, you know? So yeah. like, even that you had 15 year olds reading it that would have been able to understand the satiric humor of PC horror comics, you know, was sort of a controversial idea, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this also goes to the fact that a teenager was a new idea in the 50s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a, a major factor in the panic about comic books. <laughs> thank for thank sure. you, Archie. <laughs> I mean, in part, you know, part of why Riverdale is the greatest show ever um, is, is that it, I mean, it like that is a big part of it. The 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 you know, the invention of the teenager is very much a postmodern kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And as far as the idea of even like comics being kid stuff. Comics were major media up until the war, because remember, television's not really yeah, a thing yeah, before right. World War II. Yeah, like, yeah. It exists, but no one owns one. <laughs> um, people have radios and, you, you know, you can't take a radio with you. So the the entertainment that everybody has is a comic book because they're just cheap. You know, they also have pulp novels, but like cheap books are just sort of that's that's the TV show of the day. Yeah. Right. Well, comics are this form of visual culture that is accessible to a mass audience and is a form of popular visual culture that you can consume in private. You know, the way we would watch a movie or something on our phone now was not something people could have done then. If you mm. had a television, it would be a central television in your home. Right? So, I mean, one of the things, yeah. So, like, I mean, one <laughs> of the things that were them and the anti-comics crusaders found really threatening about comics was that it was helping nurture this new youth culture. You know, whether it's child culture or whether it's teenage culture. Because it was a form of culture that children and teenagers could do outside of the supervision of their parents. Mm-hmm. And when we think about those anti-comics kind of moral panic news features that sort of ran in the in the years leading up to the eventual comics code, they're very much framed as that, right? It's like kids mm-hmm. reading comics in the woods, you know, just like mm-hmm. you would hide your pornography in the woods. Yeah. And then or they're reading the it sort of, yeah. you know, late at night when they're supposed to be asleep <laughs> and they're just like vibrating, right? There's a real sexual kind of private subversive yeah. thrill uh, to this medium. There was a, a TV show, there was a DVD included with one of the books on art in the 50s that had a 1950s TV show that was anti-comics. <laughs> and, and it was exactly, they basically showed this group of kids mm-hmm. playing in the woods with comics and they ended up torturing mm-hmm. this kid because yeah, they wrote a comic. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I know exactly and, the one you're talking yeah, about. I and, always and show that is, to my it, students. It, yeah, it, it, it's so over the top and, and ridiculous. But it, you're right. It's exactly that. It's like, oh, look what they're getting up to when you're not watching over them. Yeah. Well, we should. I mean, we we mentioned we, we've all if we all said the, the teenagers didn't exist uh, for the listeners. We mean that quite literally before, yeah. before the Second World War. Um, you know, you just had children and then adults because the concept of a teenager as we know it i mean now obviously there's a period of time where there you know there well, were people of a teenage yeah people who are of the age between you know 12 and 20 that <laughs> but no one used them as separate terms because you sort of you sort of were just under parental supervision until you were old enough to be useful to society and work 
and then you got treated more or less like an adult um uh and, if you were male you, if you were female you, until we you, could marry you off and yeah, and, and you went into the factories or the farms at a very right, young age right and that's kind of you know or we sent you to a war um yeah. the idea of of having teenagers requires uh, now before the turn of the century before 1900 there's this is not an idea that anybody cares about being a teenager requires you to have um to have a body developed enough to not a body and mind developed enough to not need constant supervision and not in a place that needs you to work so you know you don't live on a farm you have to live in a city essentially and it has you need transportation because nobody cares about teenagers when like your entire life is within a, you know, a three square mile radius of where you were born because you have to walk everywhere. Right. Like once there's cars that <laughs> then, then people who are 16, 17 years old become terrifying because, you know, they're bigger than you and faster and they can kill you, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a very, so, so when we get through this crime comic and horror comic era, we end up at 1954 and a man named Frederick Wortham who writes a book called seduction of the innocent, which terrifies the country that teenagers are going to kill all their parents and also become gay and also rape people. It's, all dangers of the world are are from comics, according to Frederick Wortham, who, other than that, actually wasn't that bad a guy. If you actually look into his life history. Have you guys done a specific comics code or Frederick Wortham show? No, before? we haven't. No, I, mean, we haven't. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to get into it. Yeah, we've thing. mentioned him, but um, maybe we'll save that. So, yeah. Probably. And, and and yeah, and later in his life, I don't really exactly recount recanted, but he he got into like fanzines and yeah, he's some done. of that culture and a, yeah. But but anyway, Wortham writes this book, terrifies everybody about comics, and it's the same kind of argument that we've talked about on other shows. Where at one point everybody was terrified of Dungeons and Dragons, at one point everybody was terrified of <laughs> rock and roll, of rap music, of professional wrestling, of video games. You know, it, it's the kind of thing that we get afraid of. Comics were the thing, and we have these Senate subcommittees, the Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency in 1954 and 55, which is where Gaines basically had the test, the testimony that Wayne was talking about earlier. Well, he's like popped up on a lot of pills. Yeah, well, he popped up on a lot of pills, which, which didn't help. Yeah, a lot of benzodrine. I think it's also worth messaging with the Senate hearings that comic books was not their target. They were investigating everything that could promote juvenile delinquency yeah. and for them right. comics was actually very minor mm -hmm. in the comic book industry this was a was a, almost a death blow so when you talk about comic yes. book history this is a big event but for the committee yeah this was three days in new york and it wasn't that important to them yeah right because the, the hearings go on for a year it's just yeah, yeah the, the comics part i mean it's just one industry that got destroyed but it but yeah. essentially this was a you know people were afraid of teenagers yeah. Well, and, and just with Max Gaines, uh, not Max, I'm sorry, Bill Gaines, I, I'm, I'm getting to Max, you, as a publisher of EC Comics, which was one of the ones that was most targeted because they were in many ways the most adult content in terms of graphic violence and implied sexuality and, and just overall grossness. Uh, and also Bill, a lot of a lot of racial diversity in their comics that yeah. people did not like at the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill was the son of Max Gaines, who was one of the people who work for DC Comics national periodicals and arguably the creator of the comic book format we're talking about. Um, so, and, and so many of the people working in the industry in the 1950s 
just did not want to go to those hearings at all. We just, you know, didn't want to be associated with it. So he was brave enough to go and, and be questioned and dumb enough to take a lot of Benzedrine ahead of time. <laughs> and they fed him to the wolves. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Because the industry sacrificed him. Um, yeah. And, and EC along with it. Yeah. If you want to read a really great recent history of EC comics um, that speaks a lot about the racial justice themes within them, I'd recommend Kiana Whithead's recent book, EC Comics, Race, Shock, and Social Protest. It just came out last year. Okay. That'll be linked in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, that's one I hadn't heard of. Thank you. Yeah, so that basically kills it, but... It's an interesting time period. And Anna, you said you had a favorite genre from that period. Favorite? Oh, well, no, I just more like, I don't know. I I don't like a lot of the crime comic books because, I mean, the EC stuff is fun because it's satirical. But I mean, there is a lot of stuff from that period that's, you know, there's a lot of like violence against women stuff that Wortham mm-hmm. sort of had a right to be concerned about. So if you go back and read all of the crime comics from like the late 40s, early 50s, and you're thinking yeah. it's going to be this wonderful site of social protest, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't entirely wrong. Yeah, he wasn't he was wrong very about much, everything. He was. It's it's interesting. It's interesting because if you're a comic book fan, maybe we really should do a Wortham show because we tend we as a as a culture tend to demonize him. He became comics boogeyman. He was trying to do a good thing yeah. and frankly was a good dude in many ways up until this point and after this point. I mean, this um, is a guy that's giving out like free psychiatric services like in Harlem that's intensely concerned about racial caricatures in comics, which he had a right to be. He and was right. superheroes yes. had yes. like blackface caricature sidekicks um, at that time. Yeah. And, and he, you know, whether he intentionally misled people with his research or not, I think he was just concerned and he was concerned in the exact same way as in 2020. I don't know. Well, I don't know what it's going to be in 2020, but as in 2019 or 18, people get concerned about video games or again, you know, the rap music scare or the Dungeons and Dragons scare. People are afraid of, you know, their kids. You know what it is today? Yeah, the kids are on the internet too much. It's going to ruin them. You know, <laughs> like those kinds well, of things. Cell were, phones. Yeah, it were, were the things that he that this book's about. And I, he took it a little too far. And also he destroyed an industry that I love. Yeah, I, and I think some of his conclusions were, were faulty, certainly. Yes. Yeah. It's um, very easy to point to his stuff about homosexuality and Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman being particularly egregious in yeah. terms of some wrong conclusions. Yes. Um, that said, like particularly with the stuff with Wonder Woman, I mean, some of the, the the reasons he was drawing those conclusions weren't too far off base. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, his reading yeah. of like Wonder Woman being a glorious lesbian who's trying to indoctrinate us all into lesbianism is not wrong. His reading of that as a morbid ideal is wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, it's a complicated issue. And I think that that's kind of what makes the Golden Age comics interesting is because they're all complicated. Um, I wrote an art, I linked it on, on the blog. I wrote an article about Sally the Sleuth um, oh. a while back, which is, I still believe that it's quite possible that I'm the only person alive on the planet who's read every issue of Sally the Sleuth. <laughs> is, um, the early Sally the Sleuth are comics about she's the sleuth she's a detective arguably but mostly she's a victim she's just there to be captured by the bad guys um stripped arguably raped and then rescued by her boss 
and this goes on for, you know, several years and then she disappears and then she comes back. The same guy, same creator comes back and starts a new series and she's Olivia Benson from SVU. Like she, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Like, like in the, in, in the new series, she is 100% competent. She goes out and she stops these crimes. Um, the famous there's a famous panel in Wortham's book that just says Jeepers a Dame and she's been croaked. That's from a Sally the Sleuth comic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and 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 it's a and it's a fascinating look at the Golden Age because I don't know how um like in the period when the book wasn't being published, I don't know how it went from this extremely exploitive rape fantasy into a um you know a progressive woman police officer the, story the, the creator obviously got some free therapy from frederick Wortham. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he, he just goes away for yeah he, um he goes away for a decade and becomes woke i guess it's it's, it's real bizarre <laughs> but um but that's classic in terms of like those contradictions again of the golden age because i mean one of the reasons i mean it's exciting in much the same way like pre-code movies are exciting right mm -hmm. we do have these sort of glimpses of like female liberation and deviant sexuality and, and things that are very exciting to see in in comic books especially after the comics code really cracked down on i mean one of the things the comics code um tried to regulate was you know gender representation and sexuality right you know we couldn't mm -hmm. have any non-normative sexualities and we had to have traditional gender representations mm -hmm. you know marriage above all that kind of thing whereas in the golden age there's so many superheroes that have like and again it's usually a female sidekick with a more diminutive name you know rocket man rocket girl that kind of thing Catman mm -hmm. and the kitten which is so adorable <laughs> that i'm gonna forgive it um, but, you know at the same time when i'm reading these comics you know there's a wonderful again subversive sexuality about them where you have this male and female superhero, they usually wear kind of a matching costume and have matching powers and they just go on adventures together. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of wonderful. And it's not something you would see again in that way for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the Silver Age period essentially codifies and enforces a fictional gender ideal from and remember Silver Age starts in the in the mid 50s, but it very much sort of codifies this perfect gender ideal from the 1930s that didn't even really exist then <laughs> like like it very much everything has to be about marriage um it's very much uh if you think what you, you think hollywood production code where you know you don't even want to see people kissing if they're not married <laughs> you know like it is so sanctified married with their separate beds yeah separate beds that sort of thing it is so sanctified it is so pristine and the the very idea of deviant sexuality, which is, you know, or aberrant sexuality, essentially being gay is anathema after like because there's a lot of I mean, again, Wortham's not wrong about Wonder Woman comics. It is very, very heavily implied that she's bisexual. That's the arguably the point of of and his version of, of the book inspired by marston's research at yeah. sorority yes. initiation rituals right mm -hmm. and then that goes away and it just becomes about her pining for you know to be a wife <laughs> like it, it becomes so bizarre after this period's over and what makes it fun for me to look back is just thinking you know, the comics industry has never been the mainstream comics industry has never been that huge in the golden age. You know, this is this is like 20 guys living in New York, basically writing all these books. And um, 
the things that they were trying to do when they were trying to be interesting and trying to be subversive from a very different time period point of view is just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they're worth that, I can't believe that Wortham went after Batman and Robin for being gay and totally missed Hydro Man and Rainbow Boy. <laughs> <laughs> a creation of Bill Everett, who also did Submariner, who seemed to have a thing for water-based heroes. <laughs> yeah, he, the things that he... If you, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, no, I'm not going to link seduction and the innocent in the show notes. Find it yourself. Because <laughs> I, I can't. I've read seduction and the innocent. I've read it all, and it is it is a it's it's an. I'm going to use the word interesting read. <laughs> you should do a you should do a show on it. It's worth a show. Yeah, um, but there's so there's so much interesting stuff going on. I, I mean, I didn't even talk about. Um, this is the rise. This period time period is the the rise of good girl art and mm. if you think that the 90s comics of you know your witchblade and um i don't know danger girl what are the other bad girl art books wayne um no lady death lady death you know all those yeah like then you've never read you know sheena jumbo comics (laughs) there were more jungle girls than you can shake a tiger at (laughs) Um, i i spent you know again finishing up this chapter of my dissertation i spent the last three weeks reading like a large portion of of all the Sheena comics, the Sheena the comics. and they're amazing. Sheena is a warrior. I mean, they're problematic in that. Yeah. She's a, she's a white, she's a blonde white woman who is when she's like six years old, her father's an explorer and he's exploring uncharted Africa because Africa is always savages. And he makes friends with a medicine man, hangs out there for a month. And then he's ready to leave and the medicine man doesn't want him to leave. So he kills him and then and then he feels bad about killing him. And so he raises Sheena to be the new queen of their tribe because everybody loves her because she's white. Like, literally, that's the reason it's given. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're amazed by her. Yeah, they're, they're amazed then, by her, and, her and white skin. So then she this was yeah. this was years before she became a punk rocker. <laughs> then she um she goes she grows up becomes like the queen of this jungle and then this other this other explorer comes along and wow there's this hot white woman in charge of all the africans so he falls in love with her she falls in love with him and it's weird because sheena is this weird comic where rather than where where at this point where most male most male characters are trying to you know sort of tame there um even steve trevor wants wonder woman to retire which is stupid because without wonder woman he'd be dead she saves him constantly but he wants her to retire and marry him um sheena and bob bob has no interest whatsoever in taming sheena he loves that she's wild and he doesn't want to marry her he doesn't want to go back to america he's perfectly happy to be her sidekick they go and they kill poachers and then they fuck that's the story yeah. <laughs> and, they, and and it's real clear that that's what they're doing you don't actually see them have sex but it's a lot of we're going to kill people and now we're going to go back we're going to kiss and go back to our treehouse and she's half naked and she's deadly and it's crazy and <laughs> it's a crazy book that is fascinating because you go how was this written in the 40s because <laughs> you, you expect it to not be that but it was um sheena phantom uh, phantom lady a lot of books like that namor's comics are some of my favorite golden age ones he's <laughs> namor from day one and is fabulous from day one <laughs> 
And a dick. <laughs> well, yeah. He's such a dick, but he's a rogue, you know, and the ladies love him. <laughs> he's also, it, it, it's, it's a very, you know, even from the very beginning, Namor is one of the weird female gaze oriented books. He is, he is right from the beginning, too. It's like, I'm, yeah. I'm not kidding about the ladies loving him. It's a little bit like Man from Uncle, where there's often sort of a new woman in each comic that like he sort of helps out and gets to have a little adventure with him and then return to her normal world at the end. Yeah, so, so I guess we'll resolve nothing. I don't know what there was to resolve. We we'll resolved that the Golden Age was weird. It was. We resolved but, that Neymar was sexy since day one. <laughs> he is. So there is that. We, I mean, uh, we brought up the idea that this was such an experimental time that they were uh, partly just figuring out what a superhero is. But for all the comic mm-hmm. books, it was, you know, what is this format? What is this genre? What can we do with it, this type of art? And sequential storytelling. And I want to read a quote from Daniel J. Borston. Um, uh, I'll track down which uh, volume of his it is. But he talks, he's talking about American folklore. He says, two crucial distinctions mark the American making of a popular legendary hero. First, there was a fantastic chronological abridgment from elusive oral legend to print form required here a few years rather than centuries. Legends hasted into print before they could be purified of their vulgarities and localisms. Second, the earliest printed versions were in distinctly American form. David Crockett was not written down in any American counterpart of the Historia Reginum Britannia or in any Mort de Artur. And what we see in the comic books is that abridgment brought down even more. There's no, not even an oral tradition. It's just all going right into print and they'll figure it out afterwards. And it's fascinating to read those early stories in that context. Mm-hmm. And, and you read about how that stuff was produced. I mean, you would have you know a room full of twelve guys who would produce an entire comic over a weekend. <laughs> and by produce, you mean from inception to coloring, yeah, <laughs> like right, right, draw ink. Do color, do the lettering, and turn it in on Monday morning. Uh, That's yeah. how you come up with the moth. And by an entire comic, yeah. you're talking 64 pages, not these 20 yeah, right. pages we get yeah. nowadays. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's insane, but they're, they're story after story of comics being produced on that type of schedule. Uh, so yeah, that throwing anything against the wall is because they were all sleep deprived and drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Much like people working on their dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, well, I want to thank both of our guests for being here. That was a great conversation. Yeah, that was really great. Thank you. Always, uh, happy, always happy to talk comics, especially weird comics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're both welcome back anytime. Yes. John, where, where do people find, find more of you? I am a, an occasional guest on the protagonist podcast hosted by my brother, Joseph Dorowski. Uh, since we're talking about the history of comic books, I'm also going to recommend the ages of superheroes series from McFarlane comics, which my brother edits and I've had an essay in every volume. <laughs> So there's, you can find me there. Nepotism. Yes. <laughs> Somehow it works. I'm actually in the next one. Uh, I'm also going to recommend that if you want a good Golden Age comic, go track down uh, Action Comics number 12 with Superman Declares War on Reckless Drivers. I was going to bring that one up earlier. It's one of my favorites. favorites. So great. So, yeah, every, everyone go check that one out. <laughs> it's so great. 
And it As is someone just, who walks everywhere in cities and almost gets run over like once a week, I really appreciated that comic. That's, that's exactly what it sounds like, too. It's like there's nothing like yeah. you, yeah. you should read it. It's not subtle. At there's all. no surprises. This is like the title tells you what this book's about. <laughs> Superman doesn't like you if you run red lights. <laughs> that's the book. <laughs> and he will like threaten to kill you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, Anna, where will we be? <laughs> um, I am a featured panelist on a podcast called Three Panel Contrast. Um, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Um, we're a comics podcast. We're three academics that talk about various comics. We usually have a theme every week. Uh, and we've got some fun episodes coming up that I... Yeah, I, no, I don't want to spoil anything right now, but you can check us out at Three Panel Contrast um, on Twitter, wherever you find your podcasts. On Twitter, we're at number three Panel Contrast. And you had, you a, find, recent, yeah, you had a recent episode that compared um, in depth, fascinatingly, <laughs> Uncle Scrooge of the Golden Age <laughs> to Howard the Duck. <laughs> yes, we had a Duck Space podcast. It's usually our panel member, Michael, that chooses those pairings. Mine are usually boring superhero ones, but um, he always picks a weird one and they usually work out well. That's a good one. And other than that, I mean, I write a lot of stuff about gender, sex, and superheroes. Um, I've got a book coming out in the fall called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. It's an anthology all about super sex. Mm -hmm. um, so people can look out for that, although it won't be coming out for like nine months. So that's yeah, not we'll a very good plug. We'll have you back. <laughs> I'm happy back to talk about sex and superheroes then. That's literally all I do every day of my yeah. life right now. Except <laughs> 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 like dissertations are... <sighs> anyway, Wayne, how can people find you? <laughs> Mostly through the show these days. I... <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Yeah, I know. I, I have a blog with. If you've never read my blog before, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of entries on a wide variety of topics. I just haven't added anything new to it in ages. <laughs> and you can follow me on my blog at www.chrismaverick.com or on Twitter at Chris Maverick. You can follow this show on our blog at www.voxpopcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all at Vox Popcast. If you enjoy this show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, write us a five-star review, especially on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever they call it. Um, if you can write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that tricks the algorithm into making people think that we are more important and more famous than we really are, which is good for us doesn't do much for you but it's good for us and we will read your name on the show we will thank you profusely and you'll make our day it'll be like the golden age of podcasting it's a great <laughs> idea <laughs> and i would like to thank maximilian of thought for music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out i'd like to thank our guests once again for joining us I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect.